0: What you're about to hear is the unbelievable journey of a boy from Holland who survived the horrors of the Holocaust to become a hockey legend. On the ice, he was known as the Flying Dutchman, and no death row or death camp could clip his wings.
1: I was given a life and I will defend it and I will do the best I can with it.
0: And now, as he fights his final battle against a slow and silent killer, David Dickey Gruntman wants you to hear his words in the hope humanity may finally learn from its evil past. They say spoilers ruin a good story, but we already knew Dickie made it out of the death camps alive. It's how he was able to sit with me all these years later and recall every twist and turn of fate and fortune from his arrest to liberation. So, here's another spoiler while we're at it. Dickie's inspiring tale is far from over and some of the most unbelievable bits are still to come. I know, it's hard to believe there could be more. I was thinking the same thing as I interviewed the 98-year-old. Surely, that's it. There can't be more to tell. But the fading family photos and mementos that lined his Gold Coast living room suggested otherwise. So, let's pick up Dickie's story where we left off, in January 1945. 1945. He's been a Nazi prisoner for three years, moved from concentration camp to concentration camp, witnessing more crimes against humanity than most could ever fathom, and none should ever endure. And now, as the Allies close in, and it appears all this suffering may soon be over, in one way or another, Dickie faces one of the most difficult decisions of his young life. On the eve of his evacuation from Auschwitz, a Polish girl named Agnes he'd befriended while working at the factory has employed the help of a German guard to plot Dickie's escape.
1: And he calls me over and he gives me a letter. And I have a note and it was from Agnes. She said, I talked to Sergeant Worken, which was the name of this German guard. He said, you're being evacuated, as you know. I want you to walk on the last row in the column. And Sergeant Werken will be walking close to you. And he will tell you when to run. And when he said, run, you go, and I'll be behind the column to catch you. And uh, because she wanted me to escape. I had a very big problem. I said, Poles and Russians and, and Germans, I've had all of them. And after all, wherever we go, we go closer to Holland because the Russians were coming. So wherever we go, we're closer. So I,
0: I decided not to do it. So she essentially organized...
1: Yeah, she organized my escape.
0: When did you have to make that decision? Was that a split-second oh, decision?
1: Just, well, no, a day or so.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. yeah, I played with it before. They said, I oh, can't.
0: It's too dangerous. I don't know. Even in those conditions that you were living in? Don't trust. Opting to stay and see rather than run and risk the unknown. What sort of condition are you in by this stage? I mean, yes, you've been working in a factory and well, you out we of Well, we
1: but... overall pretty good. Because they left us alone, they needed us for the for the work. We were, but once they become obsolete or useless to them, they kick it from, to kingdom Come, but they had to work for us. They they needed us.
0: So on the twenty third of January, hundreds of surviving prisoners were made to walk from Auschwitz to Mauthausen, one of the most notorious Nazi camps. Similar forced evacuations on foot were taking place across the Reich as Soviets and Americans rapidly advanced. These became known as the Death Marches because so many never reached their destination.
1: When the evacuation came in Auschwitz was the 28th of January 1945. And because we were a lot of tradesmen, in our camp all tradesmen we didn't have to walk out of the camp we got a train and they load us in one wagon about 165 in one wagon cattle wagon and took us to ended up in Mounthausen, in Austria very bad camp and there as we entered there's like a committee of carpo sitting there and they as you go in look pretty healthy like Co did because we worked in the factory and we could get extra food so we weren't undernourished so at that point of time Ko goes in front of me and um, one of the guys said what he had a bit, bit round head you know he's a, he's a strong fella and he looked he looked pretty solid and he said uh, are you a, a forarbider? no where did you work? he said oh in Jintochlevic in the factory Yeah, but chief is at the... And they wake him with a baseball bat right in his face. And his jaw is sitting here.
0: Holding his own jaw as far to one side of his face as possible, Dickie tries to explain how deformed the face of his good friend Co now was following the impact of that baseball bat.
1: And he's out Cold. And they throw them on the, on the bodies, this pile of bodies there. So shoot people later, it's my turn. And, yeah, 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 okay, no, he's all right. So they let me go through. Behind me was another Dutch fellow, a uh, small fella, And he got through too. I said, look, Coe is laying there. Let's grab Coe and take him with us. So because all the commotion, they don't know what's going on, who's ringing or what, so we pick Coe up on their arm and we march him. Out to the barracks with us. And he said, wake up, go, get a bit of snow on his head and wake up. Oh, 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 he couldn't move, his jaw was broken. So we were there from 28, 29, 30 of January till the 5th of May, Liberation Day. Now those four months say, I fed Co in the little hole we had here, took a bit of bread and Put it in there. The I said, No, i finished. I can't eat. I can't chew. Eat, eat, eat. Shut up. Eat. And I said, Sure. You can't chew. Swallow. And that's how we kept him alive till the liberation.
0: And, and they singled him out because he talked back, or he was.
1: Yeah, he said he was a forerunner. He thought he get a good job or something, you know. I said, Yes. And somehow they whack him in. They wake you for nothing. They hang people. There's a whole row of people hanging there.
0: A lifelong bond forged in the face of great adversity. It was Coe who taught Dickie how to fool the SS into believing the teenager was a skilled tradesman. An act that spared him from brutal labour out in the elements a sure death sentence. So risking his own life to pluck Coe's lifeless body from that pile as they entered Mauthausen and feeding his mate crumbs and water through a severely broken jaw was the least Dickie could do. Especially considering these friends had growing faith, freedom was coming.
1: He was obviously very depressed and we all helped him and we all tried to keep him smiling or keep up with the situation we had to face. And the situation was, we practically know it's coming to an end. The said, we're coming so far, you're not going to give up now. Don't you dare. And, you know, just bit the pep talk and feed him, because he couldn't do it himself. Feed him for three months and take him to work and back.
0: And... Still with his jaw like that, he must have been in some pain. Oh. How hard was that for you to watch a man who had kept you alive? And, and... For me,
1: I didn't think about it. It was natural thing to do. I didn't make a big uh, thing out of it, but I made sure that he got that bad what he had. I put it in a bit of tea and then soft and put it in the said, swallowed, it. I don't care if you don't chew it. Swallow.
0: And do you remember that moment when when the liberation... Well, it
1: wasn't one moment. Because they had learned already, the Allies had learned from Berg and Belsen and so Before before the, they come to the door, the Germans kill everybody. So they had a different method of liberating those camps. And also the first truck that came to the door of the camp had food and doctors on board. So in the end, we saw less and less SS in the camp. And then there came a message we can't go out of the camp. But they didn't come in the camp anymore. But we could hear the thunder of the big guns. And we knew the Russians were getting close. And fortunate for us, on the Fifth of May 1945, the gates opened, and there was a big American tank standing there uh, with the American soldiers.
0: Were you expecting? Yeah, we to be were the sitting Russians, inside. Or?
1: We knew it, would, it had to happen because the Germans were gone. But but were you expecting the Americans to be the ones? That no, we expected the Russians. And I guess relief then, that big sigh. So the Americans were there, and. Uh, the first thing, there was one big guy on a, on a tank with a megaphone. And he said, any people speak English?
0: They needed a translator. In a crowd of tens of thousands, Dickie raised his hand. Yes, sir.
1: Oh, where are you from? They're so from Holland. So, yeah, speak English. You tell those people not to move out because... The, Red Cross trains are on the way, food is on the way, everything is on the way, be here in a few hours. Where if they go out, they start plundering everybody, the whole neighbourhood, and there's nothing in trouble. Anyway, you couldn't stop them anyway, they went out.
0: Liberation at last. Tens of thousands of prisoners are pouring from Mauthausen, finally free. They're running in every direction desperate to taste salvation after days, months, and for some years of torment and torture. And where's Dickie? A 21-year-old who now tips the scales at just 34 kilograms, less than half what he weighed when he entered the camps. Perched atop an American tank with a megaphone, translating English to Dutch, French and German, pleading for his fellow free souls to stay put, trying to explain that a train with doctors, nurses and food is on the way. His efforts are mostly in vain.
1: They say, don't go, doctors are on the way, food is on the way. I told the sergeant, said, look mate, it doesn't matter if you put a machine gun on, they won't stop. They've been waiting for years for that, that gate to open and now they're opening it out. And they had a whole row of SS people standing on the wall. And then when the Poles and the Russians came out, they went straight into the wall. And the sergeant said, tell them not to do that. Tell them. said, look, you've got 60,000 people locked up here. They're all very furious and, and, and angry. In your
0: darkest days in that camp, did you ever imagine that that, that moment would come? Did, did you have hope? all the way through that that was going yes, to happen? Yes,
1: yes. I had a convention that after I knew the Americans were in the war, I said, oh, they won't. No, nobody can stop us.
0: And that decision to throw your hand up and to... Offer your services to to translate yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. for the Americans? Yeah, well, that took me to the office of the, the... Now it's the CIA, but in those days it was the CIS, Counterintelligence Services. And I sit in an office and I had to translate from French to German, German to English and all that,
0: you know busy all day. So this is after the liberation? Straight
1: after. That, I walked out of the camp and the same night I was already in the office with, uh, with the American officers. And there he saw my hole in my neck and my foot and my leg and straight away went on the phone, you know. And um, a doctor came. He said, drop your pants. He said, I beg your pardon? He said, drop your pants. I've got to give you injections. Or, what is injection? He said, Penna what? Never heard of all those things. Anyway, he gave me a shot of penicillin, and he gave me the box of biscuits. He said, don't eat anything else. No milk, no nothing. Water. And I'll see you tomorrow, you get another shot. And it's four days ago.
0: Why only eat the biscuits? I mean, it, you well, must have been starving.
1: The, the boys, we have been so badly undernourished that your body can't handle certainly. The normal food is too heavy, too greasy but the American soldiers thought they were doing well and giving their rations to the prisoners in the streets, you know. And uh, they drink the tins of condensed milk and oh, and the fruit salads they have that goes straight through. You get,
0: they die in the street dysentery after all of that. All of all of it. You can survive yeah. through death camps and the dysentery is what gets you. Yeah, a lot of people died after all. But Dicky, the translator, would live and be looked after. The Americans had set up base in the nearby Austrian town of Linz and gave Dicky a job and a place to stay. A beautiful villa that's previous resident had been a high-ranking Nazi who'd moved in during German occupation. You were the translator. What did a day look like and where uh, were you living? Yeah, and- there
1: was a lot of French army prisoners of wars in those camps there. General staff was there. Beautiful. Lots of officers. They were interrogated by the Americans. So i from French to English and there were Germans too, from German to English, and typed it all up with a translated and so. It was a good
0: job. When you turned up, you didn't even have a pair of shoes to begin with.
1: The front line in that area was the army of General Patton. Nobody under six foot. They got special names, those troops. Consequently, their shoes are that big too. They don't fit me. So I said to his look, I've got no shoes. He said, oh, we'll fix that. So he said, come on, we go shopping. Follow me. So he stops in front of his shoe shop. Nobody answered the door, so he bangs the door in. He said, sit down and get a pair of shoes. So we fitted a few pairs. and said, take em. Wow. The Wild West. <laughs>
0: During the liberation, Dicky was separated from Co-Waterman and his other comrades from the camps, but it wasn't long before he came across a familiar face on the outside. Jaime, the young boy with appendicitis from Auschwitz. Dicky and three others had each taken a limb and held Jaime down as fellow prisoners, two Polish surgeons, used a sharpened tin can to remove his organ. In a daring death camp operation that saved the teen's life.
1: When I was uh, a few days in uh, in Linz, it's called, that's where the head office was, uh, I ran into Jaime in the street, so he survived his appendix operation. And then uh, he, said, he said, After what do you do? He said, I don't know, I'll go from one corner to the next. I said, oh, come with me. And because Through the Americans, they gave me an empty house to live in. It was from some police commissioner or, say, S-man, and he disappeared. So they gave me the house. Very nice villa, beautiful. I said, come with me because you can look after the house. I said, okay. So, Jaime, we sleep there the first night, and I go to work. I get picked up in the jeep every morning, and I go to work till I come back in the afternoon. He said, look, Dick, I want you to come with me. He said, where to? I'll show you. So Harvey went downstairs and he had a candle, I think. Yeah, he yeah, candle. And he we come underneath and there's a huge basement on the wall, all barrels, wooden barrels, 50, 60, 80 of them. He said, look what I discovered. He said, what is it? He said, I don't know. I said, well, i put the light there and uh, I'll read blah, 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 in French. So said, oh. He said, well, go get a big a hammer or something. And, and a couple of knives, or a screwdriver, what you can find upstairs in the kitchen. So he can make it nice, and I start... Knock a hole in. Oh my god. French cognac running all over the place. <laughs> I had about, I don't know, 50 barrels of fresh cognac. Said, so don't you tell anybody, make a pluck, get ready. So the next day, Hall, comes out. Hall, i got a problem.
0: And Hall's a sergeant in the army. Yeah. He said, what's your problem?
1: I said, I need empty bottles. He said, what for? He said, I'm going to make you a rich man. He said, how come? So I told him, and said, come downstairs. And I showed him the cognac I, I discovered. He said, "Jesus!" he said, no, don't tell anybody. Just collect bottles. So Jaime had a job cleaning the bottles, making from paper, whatever, a plug. And then he was all day pumping, hole through the bottles, you know, and sell them for what you get. And then bring the empties back. So there was a roaring business we had.
0: You were there six weeks and you... you... Six weeks, yeah. An entrepreneur. <laughs>
1: yeah, it was a pure accident, pure accident.
0: You've gone from living in squalid conditions oh, in yeah. these death camps, horrible conditions that no one can imagine, no. to living in a beautiful villa in yeah, Austria. Oh, we had
1: beautiful bedrooms and everything's gorgeous. Okay. And the view over the danube. <laughs> yes. And then we found all that money. What? Wh- how much did you make? Well, I don't know. I split it up three ways with us. With, uh, but I went home, I think, about close to $30,000.
0: Not a bad innings for <laughs> six weeks. No, I had
1: to. I had a shoulder buckets full of dollars.
0: Incredible. And Jaime
1: as well. I mean, yeah, he stayed. He says, "Stay there, shut up, and just go on with the Americans, sell all the projectors.
0: It's all yours. I'll go home." And you must, I guess, owe a lot of this to the relationship that you built with the American soldiers. The, the yeah, captain. well,
1: we, we were very good with the Americans. Never very good, boss. They
0: really bad. couldn't do enough for us translating by day and bootlegging by night for six weeks. And it got to the stage that you'd been working for the Americans and they offered you a way out. Yeah,
1: they offered me to stay in the army and get repatriated to America and receive official script money, army money and all that. I said, oh, no, 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 I've got family, i got,
0: I got to go home. How did you end up getting home?
1: After talking to Milton, he realized that my only object in life is to get home as quick as possible. So one day, I think it was June, six, eight weeks after I started working, he said, Look, Dicker, can I get you a lift to Paris? Won't that help? I said, Yeah, sure. Put me on it. He said, Okay, next Tuesday I'll take you to Vienna and put you on the plane. Mr. French. So that day came and Milton took me to the airport. We said Goodbye and uh, keep in touch and uh, went on the plane and i arrived in paris how did you get on that flight well they were being repatriated right they were prisoners like innocent but they were french officers so they were repatriated to paris anyway we we land and we come out of the plane And there's an army band, and they start playing the national anthem, French national anthem. Anyway, they take us to the hotel, and we each get the nurse on oh, no, our arm. I said, I'm not a French officer. It doesn't matter, she said. just all right. Anyway, we go to the hotel, take your clothes off. Doctor comes with a spray. DDT everywhere, looking in your hair for eyes. And I'm sitting there with that nurse. And the doctors are finished, He said, wait here, and she goes. Comes back with a whole pile of clothes. So I go through them with a shirt, pants, army stuff, you know. Very nice, but clean, and it fit, beautiful. Said so now come with me downstairs. So we go downstairs, and there's all tables, these French of- officials. And uh, I see them all going in the queue. She said, you go in the queue, and follow this, Pepper. And then I see they're getting money. I said, I'm not French. I'm Dutch. I am not belong here. He said, don't worry. So Go
0: to Cuba, they give me 20,000 francs. Thank you very much. <laughs> 20,000 francs to add to the tens of thousands he'd made bootlegging cognac with Jaime. Dickie was finally a free man in France with a bag full of cash. After such an ordeal, most people would now be ready to rest... And properly recover. But if you've been listening to this story from the beginning, you'd know Dickie isn't built like most people. This was a man on a mission to find his family. First stop Belgium, where his father had run the family gaming business, then to the Netherlands and Amsterdam to search for his mother, grandmother, and sister.
1: Now I've got to go to to Holland. By the time it's afternoon, she said, you're good here. said, no, I'm not good here because I'm going home to Holland. Oh, there's no trains. Okay, we'll see about that. But I had a very nice letter from Milton that I worked for the Americans and that all the Americans should help me to get home. Very nice letter. So I went to the Garden North, which is only walking distance from the hotel, and there's a train there that says Brussels. On, on the platform, but there's two big, huge American military police walking there. <laughs> so you can't go on there. Anyway, I look at it, and I look at it again. He said, what the hell? I go to the police. I said, listen, fellas, so and so and so and so. I show him my letter. He so, said, I work for the Americans, and uh, I've got to get to Brussels, and I have no other means of getting there. Can I get on the train? He said, uh, that he go. His back his so I went on a train, an all military train, all Americans, you know, and uh, I ended up in Brussels the next morning. You were still dressed in your French... Yeah, I still had my French. <laughs> your
0: French uniform.
1: khaki, khaki, and my back full of money.
0: <laughs> After what you'd been through, it seems like you didn't stop. You Nothing. worked, you worked, you worked, and then you got on a flight, and you ended up in France. Yeah. You're given a uniform, you're given this money, and... Yeah you went straight to the train station. I mean, you must have been exhausted. <laughs> like-
1: well, energy was nothing. You only had one thing in your whole head. A whole, how do we get home? So to continue that, at the station in Brussels, there's a Dutch military office. So I go to the office, say, hello, sir, so, hello. You know, Captain Lopout, I ask. He said, yeah, sure, he's in charge here. So said, where is he? He said, home in bed, it was six o'clock in the morning. Oh, yeah. Said, well, can you give him a ring? He said, I wouldn't dare to do that. <laughs> I said, well, you give me his number. Why? He said, I'm going to ring him because he's my cousin. And I just come out of Poland f- after four years, and he-, he has to come here and pick me up. Oh, has he? Yeah. Anyway, with reluctantly he gave me the phone number, and I ringed him. I said, Maurice? Yeah. Oh, Dickie here. Who? What? And then he cried, Oh, stay there, I'm coming. <laughs> so he came and then uh, you know, he took me home and This was the first family member you'd seen. First relay relative far rather. So then I go to, to Antwerp, because that's where my father lived and, and the business was, and I go to the business and it's flourishing, it's busy like hell working, everything. So I go to my father's partner, I call him, I say, Oh, Back. Okay. How much money do you need? So anything, I'll take anything. So give me hundred thousand francs on top of that. <laughs> the is money. And then he said, "I want to go to Amsterdam quickly. How do I get there? Can you get me a car or something?" He says, yeah, Holland is closed. Why? Because there is cholera. Cholera. All closed. Nobody can get into Holland." I said, but I'm going to go in. He said, "You can't." So well, watch me. So I went to the shop and bought a nice push bike with four bags, two in the front, two in the back. I went to the supermarket, loaded the bags up full with food tins—you know, Campbell soup and this soup and that—the and vegetables. You couldn't lift the thing anymore. Anyways, I'm going to Holland. So I go on the train and then to, to the border because trainers are going to Holland. So I take my back off and my bike off and start biking. So after maybe hour and a half, I'm way in Holland already because of all the backways. No no water. And there's a big river going to the south of the, province, the Rhine, and that has two big bridges over it, with one foot trains and one foot of traffic. And the both lanes the Germans made sure they go in the water before they left. So there's no transport. I said, gee, how do I get across this? It looks like an ocean so big. And uh, anyway, there's two soldiers walking down the road. It's, oh, Canadian military police. I said, oh, hello, boys. Hello. Where are you from? So so and so. I start talking, told a story about this. And I have to get over the river. Yes. And I start talking ice hockey, you know, and all the players from Toronto and all that. And they said, oh, gee, you're good. Anyway. One of them said, wait a minute. And he had a box. He got in the phone. He talked yep. He comes to me. He said, stay here with us because the lieutenant is coming. Oh, no. Oh. Soon enough, in the distance, up, 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 a little boat comes with the lieutenant and another sergeant. He said, where is that hockey player, Dutchman? He said, You're here. Anyway, we started talking, talking. And he said to the we put his bike in, in the boat. And he takes me across the river.
0: (laughs) So cholera couldn't stop you. (laughs) Bombed bridges couldn't stop you. Again, the fact that you were able to essentially chat up these Canadians really was what managed to get you across that body of water.
1: And then I started riding the bike again and I ended up in Rotterdam. And there I collapsed. I wake up. And I'm laying on the couch like that. Oh, oh, where am I? Whatever. Lady said, come now, take it easy. He said, where am I? She said, oh, you're in my house. And you collapsed on the footpath here. So we took it. Where's my bike? Where's my? Yeah, the bike is inside. It's in the hallway. He said, we look out for everything. Nobody touches anything. And the old lady pulled me. So I had a shower and a shave, and she made me something, and I gave her half a dozen tins of coffee and, and goodies, you know. Then I'm back on the way to uh, Amsterdam on the bike.
0: So you collapsed probably from exhaustion? 36 kilos. And then you got back on your bike and kept yeah, going? Yeah, back on the bike. And you finally made it home? Yeah. Back to Amsterdam, the city where Dickie was born and raised, where this Dutchman learned to fly on the ice and last saw his loved ones alive. By plane, train, bicycle and boat, with barely a moment's break, he'd made it from Austria to France, Belgium to the Netherlands. Nothing could stop Dickie in his pursuit for home. And once he'd made it, Dicky reached out to Tante Truce an old family friend and leader of the Dutch resistance. If anyone was to know if any of his relatives had managed to survive all this time, it would be her. After holding on to hope through the harshest of realities, this was the moment Dickie had been waiting for.
1: And they said, yes. We brought your mother there and there, but it's three years ago. I don't know, she's still alive. And I said, well, we have to go. She said, you can't go, there's no trains. There's no way you get there. I said, yes, there is. I got a pushback outside. I said, what's more, Henny, you come with me, you sit on the back. And I paddled all the way to Harlem the next day. And she knew where they were and they were there. And she said, I'll go first to make sure that she doesn't get a shock or so." And they were still there. And my grandmother and my mother in the attic upstairs. They were still sitting there. And they were very happy to see me. And you to see them, I'm oh, sure. that was amazing. Yeah, that was the end of the war. After all that effort? It was a big effort.
0: Reunited at last, 30 kilometres from their old Amsterdam home, his mother Rosetta and grandmother Dina had been hiding in a Harlem attic for three years. Rosetta used her dressmaking skills to keep the entire household alive, trading clothes she would make for food. Can you still remember the look on your mother and grandmother's face?
1: Oh, they were crying, of course. They were speechless, absolutely. Out of her
0: world. That was amazing. But more family members was still missing.
1: The main thing, we left on the radio at night. Got to be listening.
0: And what were you listening for? From the Red
1: Cross, the names. Father, sister, brother-in-law. So every night? Every night. It was on for, for a year, I think. The Red Cross? Yeah, they read out the names and they give the addresses where they are. They found them in Russia, in Poland, in Lithuania, everywhere. Because people, what they were in the camps, and the camps opened, they walked anywhere. The survivors, they started walking and worked themselves home. But then in the big cities, they go to your own countries. Red Cross, you see, they look after you.
0: Then one night, he did recognise a name. Andre Vandenberg, one of the friends he'd been arrested with on the train all those years ago. The same boy whose father had bribed the German guards to spare them all a death sentence, and instead have them sent to concentration camps.
1: Yeah, I know from the park, yeah, yeah,
0: I picked him up from
1: there. I went to his parents, and I got a car from underground, and we went in the car. I see him stayed with him for a week, and he passed away.
0: He was too far gone. And this is the same yeah. boy that you got on the train with all those years earlier? No, very nice looking boy.
1: No, there was nothing left of Andre, nothing.
0: To be able to see Andre that last time, that must have been... No, it's very, very
1: painful. They, uh, one of the monks or priests, whatever you call them, they went to, the, to his father said, we better give him the last rites. And he heard us and he said, Dick, don't let it come near me. You know, there's no God. You know, I don't want it. Didn't believe in God anymore? Nah, I couldn't believe in nothing. You see what people can do to other people, you don't say there's no God. It's a simple thing.
0: It's a belief Dickie still holds to this day the trauma from that time runs deep. As the weeks turned into months back home in Amsterdam and the list of names on the radio grew shorter, the surviving Gruntman's gravest fears would eventually be confirmed. Dickie's father, Elias, sister Betty and her husband, Arpie, were all murdered at Auschwitz. Their lives are mortalised today on the walls of Dickie's Gold Coast home by beautiful family photos that were so nearly lost too. Just take me back to that moment when you when you arrived home to your old home in Amsterdam. Yes. Who were you greeted by and what they, they took you up to, to show you some things?
1: Oh yeah. I wanted to look at my old address. So I went there. And we used to live on the first floor. And on the ground floor, there were very old, elderly people. And when I stood outside looking at my, seeing that there's other people living there, the curtain parted on the ground floor, and the lady was still there, and she saw me. So she called me in. And uh, said, your mother is gone, you know. She yeah, I know all about it. She said, "Uh, before you go, come with me. So we go up the stairs, up to the attic. And she said, you open that door, and then move this box, move that box, move that. And I moved a lot of stuff in there. I found big boxes with all my photo albums, my hockey gear, my skates, my, my sticks, everything she had taken out of the house after my mother left and put it away for us. So it was all there? All there. That's how come I got photos from my sister and from my family. She saved her. Without that, I mean... Why, then, I wouldn't have a photo of my father. Or anybody. Wow. Yeah, she's looked after all that for me.
0: But to go home and to see someone else living in your house... Yeah,
1: it's all painful. Everywhere it's painful. Wherever you walk, that's why I had to get away. Wherever you walked, it was bad memories, bad memories. So then I decided to go. I want to go to Canada, of course, for the hockey, but my then wife said I'll go anywhere but not to Canada. Holland is cold enough. Not am going to a more colder country. And her girlfriend had migrated to Australia and they kept sending these beautiful postcards from Bondi Beach and so, you know, she said, and it's always warm. He said, I'll go to Australia. He said, OK, we go to Australia.
0: The further away from
1: Europe, the better.
0: Off to start a new life as far from the horrors of his past as a plane could take him.
1: And it it was difficult, but it should have never happened in the first place. You take the year 1900 and the year 2000, that's 100 years. In the 100 years, we killed 100 million people. 90% of the 100 million are under 30 years of age. Now, what, what are we doing? Nobody gained anything. All loses.
0: But that's not where this story ends. Dickie wasn't about to let this dark chapter define him. He was ready to spread his wings in a land of opportunity. And soon, Australia would see just how this Dutchman could fly. Thanks for listening to the Flying Dutchman podcast. Before you go, Dickie and I have a big favour to ask. As you've heard, David Dickie Grundtman has a remarkable life story that has captivated humans across the world. This entirely self funded project has been downloaded more than 30,000 times by people from more than 35 countries. Since the podcast launched, there have been resounding calls from listeners for this series to be turned into a documentary. Now, with your help, we plan to make it happen. At almost 100 years old, Dickie will be making his final journey back to Amsterdam, the city where he was born, to celebrate this milestone birthday in June. But this is about more than just a celebration. It's about capturing the story of a survivor and sharing his wisdom with the world. To donate to our cause, head to storiestold.com.au or follow the link in our show notes.